0: Second Timothy chapter 1 this morning again, and while you're looking that up, I'll uh, say what a privilege it has been for Marlene and I to have been with you this weekend. We have certainly appreciated uh, the warm hospitality and uh, fellowship that we have enjoyed, Uh, really enjoyed being with you. I'll also mention again the Cornerstone magazine. If you would like to receive Cornerstone magazine, the sign-up sheet is uh, in the room to my left. Or if you'd like to take just a sample copy and decide whether you'd like to receive it, you can do so uh, via the website, Cornerstone uh, Magazine. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll read this morning from verse 8, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and reading at verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles." The only hope for this world is the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for this world in politics, either of the left or of the right. There ultimately is no hope in religion or philosophy. There is no ultimate hope in academics or education. There is no hope in economics or financial plans, as legitimate as all of those things might be in their proper sphere, ultimately they are not the hope and answer for this world. The only hope, without exception, without limitation, without qualification, is the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the champion of the message of the gospel of God's grace, whenever he wrote, sooner or later, would get to the gospel. And in these verses that we have read this morning, in the context of encouraging his young fellow servant Timothy, he zeroes in on the heart of this message. And so this morning I'd like to consider with you some aspects, some features, some characteristics of the message of the gospel. The first thing he points out in verse 8 is that we are to be unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed of the gospel. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, unashamed of the gospel. Paul would write to the Romans a verse that would be well known to Christians. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Paul was unashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. I'd like to suggest to you that when Paul wrote those words that are recorded for us in the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans, uh, that he was saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, Another idea that was likely on his mind, was this, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ uh, when I compare it to all other religious and philosophical ideas. Paul was a man who was an educated man. He was a man who was well aware of the popular thinking of his day. He was raised in the city of Tarsus, an intellectual center, a university town. He would have been very familiar with the religious ideas of the day the philosophical ideas of the day. He was a man who studied as a Pharisee. He was steeped not only in the teachings of Judaism, but her accompanying traditions, and he had seen it all. He'd known it all. He had heard it all. He says, I look at all of the ideas, all of the religions, all of the philosophies. He says, when I look at the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel doesn't fall short. The gospel isn't deficient, but it rises above all of the ideas that has captured the attention of the minds and hearts of men down through the centuries. And he says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. Now, that is not to say that Paul uh, was uh, uh, was never fearless. In fact, when he wrote uh, to the churches on, on one occasion, he said, pray for me that I might have boldness, that I might know how, how, how I ought to speak. When he went to the city of Corinth, he says, I was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So when Paul says that he was unashamed of the gospel, it didn't mean that there were circumstances in which he found himself in, in which he was unsure as to how to present the gospel. He was deeply conscious of his own weakness. And this is what he gets to here in this verse. He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Now, does he stop there? No. He goes on to say, According to the power of God. In other words, as Paul went about proclaiming the gospel, as he exhorts young Timothy to be unashamed of the gospel... He is telling Timothy and he is telling us that for us to be unashamed of the gospel, we do not find that resolve within ourselves, but rather it's according to the power of God. Paul learned a vital lesson in life and he shared it with us. He learned that the power of God resting upon us comes when we are weak. Listen to these words of Paul recorded for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He describes something that uh, describes something he experienced this way. He says, It was a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. Now we don't have time to explore what all of that might might have meant, but it was something that he suffered, a great sense of weakness. Notice what he says. Verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And He, that is the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, here's what Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he says this, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Do you want to have the power of God at work in your life? Do you want to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ? Do you want to be an unashamed witness for him in your own sphere? It comes through weakness. It comes through a sense of inability. It comes through a deep uh, sense uh, uh, of the consciousness of our own limitations. You see, Paul was not a bold witness for Christ because he was full of self-confidence. He was a bold witness for Christ because he was deeply deeply aware of his own weakness and his complete and utter dependence on the power of Christ resting upon him. You see, the the power of God can't work when we're in the way. It can't work. It needs a clean slate to work on. It needs a life that says, Lord, I can't do this, but I do believe that you can do this through me. And many a man or woman of God has accomplished great things for God when they have gotten out of the way, when they're deeply conscious of their own inability. And we often think it's the other way around. We think great men and women of God are are just, boy, they've really got their spiritual act together, and they seem so full of of self-confidence, so full of ability, so full of gift. But, but, But when you look at it from their perspective, they see nothing of themselves in it, but all of the Lord. It's a good lesson to learn. Sometimes the Lord brings us into circumstances of weakness. In Paul's case, it, was a, it would appear to have been a physical limitation. And even behind it, he identified it correctly as the messenger of Satan sent to, to buffet him were his words. The idea there, I understand it, is it's one who is delivering a blow after blow after blow. It wasn't just a one-time event, but it was, but it was a chronic kind of thing that Paul suffered with, manifesting itself in a physical limitation. Paul says this, he says, I want the Lord to take this away. Three times I I besought the Lord, that it might be taken away from me. And three times the Lord answered, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul naturally reasoned that if he could be relieved of that limiting circumstances, then he would be free to accomplish great things. And we would all think that. I would think that. I'm sure you would as well. But the reality is that it was living with that weakness that the Lord allowed. You know, that messenger of Satan, he must have got into deep trouble with Satan. You see, that messenger of Satan uh, intended that he would limit and hamper and prevent the preaching of the gospel. And so he attacked Paul. And He says, I'll, I'll fix Paul. I'll, I'll fix him. I'll, I'll get at him with this thing that he was allowed to bring to bear on Paul's life. Well, the whole plan backfired. And instead of Paul being full of, uh, being hindered in his ministry, it unleashed the power of Christ in his life. It, it, it resulted in the spread of the gospel, the expansion of the gospel. Paul learned a vital lesson, and, and that messenger of Satan unknowingly advanced the cause of the gospel. Boy, he must have got in trouble when he got back to head office. That was never his intention, but that was the result. We shouldn't be discouraged over weakness. We shouldn't be discouraged over limiting circumstances that come into our lives. Uh, Things that we feel are a hindrance and preventing us. They might be circumstances of health. They they might be limitations of wealth. They, uh, They might be limitations of some other kinds of circumstances. It's in our weakness that the power of Christ flourishes. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God." We don't do this on our own. We don't do this unaided. We do this according to the power of God, unashamed of the gospel. And then the second feature of the gospel that Paul mentions here is found in verse 9. And he tells us here that, that, that salvation, the gospel, is unearned. Notice verse 9, 2 Timothy chapter 1, "...who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began." Not according to our works." Now, almost in every case where Paul gets into the gospel, he touches on this subject, that salvation is apart from works. Salvation is apart from works. We're not saved. We don't find salvation uh, by our own good works. And Paul uh, relentlessly hammers home this point. He brings it up almost any time he goes into any detail of the gospel, he'll mention that it is not according to our works, but it is a gift. If you read through his letter to the Romans, he he, he goes after it with painstaking detail to demonstrate that if we are going to know God's salvation, we must face up to this fact that we receive it by faith, we receive it according to his grace, we receive it as a gift, and we add nothing to it. Now, the reason this keeps coming up again and again in the gospel is... That there is something in us, in the natural man, that is, uh, the man or woman who doesn't know Christ, there is something in us naturally that wants to contribute to our salvation. We don't like the idea that we are completely, utterly, 100% dependent on God providing our salvation. But naturally, we want to contribute. We want to get some credit at least. Even if it's only 10% credit, or 5% credit, or 1% credit, we want to claim some credit in our salvation. Because it is a blow to human pride to recognize that we are completely, utterly incapable of saving ourselves. Sin is so pervasive in all of us that we are unable to provide our salvation. The first instance we have of this in the Bible is a story which many of you may be familiar with in the story of Cain and Abel. You remember way back at the beginning of time that both Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. And Cain brings an offering to the Lord. Uh, and he brings the, the best of the produce of the ground. Uh, Cain was a farmer and Cain grew produce and, and he brought the very best he could to God. Was't easy producing produce in those days, just as it's not easy today. It, it, it was Cain was the first generation that worked out of the, the sweat of his brow. He felt the, the effect of the curse. Of course, in those days, they didn't have all of the things we have today. He didn't have mechanical equipment. He didn't have the, the fertilizers and all of the other things that are used to help plants grow. He had to fight those weeds and those thorns and those thistles all by himself by the sweat of his brow, and he would have worked hard in producing that produce. And he takes that produce, and he brings it to God, and God rejects it, wouldn't accept it. Abel, on the other hand, uh, he also was in agriculture, he raised, he raised animals, he made, raised sheep, and, and, uh, and it says that, that he brought his offering, and his offering uh, was the first of his flock, and he offers it as a sacrifice. He kills that animal, he draws its blood, and he offers it to God, and God accepts it. And the surface of the story, it looks like God is unfair. In other words, why does he accept Abel's offering, but he wouldn't accept Cain's offering? Seems God's playing favorites. Seems he's unfair. But closer examination of the story and comparison of comments made later in the Bible on the story, uh, we learn the answer that, that, that Cain's offering was coming Cain's way. In other words, he he wanted to approach God on his own terms. The writer to the Hebrews describes Abel's sacrifice, and it says there that by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, when we read a person acting according to faith, we know that they're acting according to some divine revelation that they were given. And quite likely, Adam and Eve, the parents of Cain and Abel, explained to Cain and Abel the way of approach to God. See, Abel couldn't have acted by faith unless he had some information, he had some revelation from God to act upon. And they both, Cain and Abel, would have heard that the way of approach to God is through a blood sacrifice. They might not have known much more than that, but they knew that, that the way of approach to God would be through a blood sacrifice. So when Cain approached God, he was bringing a bloodless sacrifice. He was was bringing an offering to God without blood, but God said the only way of approach is through a blood sacrifice. You see, Cain was insisting on coming his own way, and Abel was willing to come God's way. Now, we might think, well, surely Cain should be given some credit. I mean, he was giving up the the, the best of his produce uh, harvest that year. Uh, It really cost him something. I mean, he was willing to sacrifice. In those days, you know, you didn't just go to, go to the local supermarket and get more produce. They were very dependent on the land and the, and the, the weather and whether the crops would grow. And, you know, there was something he gave, and yet, yet he, get, he got no credit for it. We get to the end of the Bible. We find that, that it is described to us uh, that Cain, Jude talks about the way of Cain. That the way of Cain was not just an innocent mistake. The way of Cain was not someone well-intentioned, doing the best that they could. No, the way of Cain was a resolve in the heart that I will not come God's way, I'll come my own way, I'll come in my own terms. I will not go and get a blood sacrifice but I am going to present the very best that man has to offer. And there are great religious systems in the world, even some of them masquerading as representatives of Christianity that claim that the way to God is to do the very best that we can. Harry Ironside, a well-known preacher of a past generation, it's reported to have said there are only two religions in the world. Only two. There are those that say you can save yourself, and there are those that say you need a savior. And that zeroes in on it pretty, pretty good. The gospel is a message of salvation that's offered freely to all those who are willing to receive that message as a gift, realizing they cannot save themselves. That it is according to God's grace in Jesus Christ that the way of salvation comes through putting our faith in Christ and what He has accomplished at the cross of Calvary. That when he went to Calvary's cross, there he gave his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. That when he died and shed his blood, it was satisfying every righteous claim. God had against me as a guilty sinner. And as we sang in one of our opening hymns, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. And as the other hymn that was sung to us, the blood will never lose its power. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. That is why my good works cannot contribute to my salvation. No matter how well-intentioned I might be, no matter how good I might try to be, my salvation rests solely 100% on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. It is on that basis that God is free, to forgive me of all my sin. It is 100% Christ, and it is 0% me. That is the fundamental issue of the Gospel. He says, it is not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus, before the world began. We can never know salvation. We can never know the forgiveness of sins. We can never come into possession of eternal life if we're clinging to anything that we have done. It is not Christ and my good works. It's not Christ and my religion. It's not Christ and me. It is Christ, 100%. Now that's a humbling experience. When we realize that our sin is so pervasive, so devastating, that it renders us in a position where we cannot save ourselves, we come completely to an end of ourselves and we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. It is, a, it is the gospel The message of salvation is that it is unearned. We are to be unashamed of the gospel, and the gospel is unearned. But then we notice also that the gospel is unparalleled. It is unparalleled in this respect, that it deals with the matter of death, life, and immortality. It amazes me that everyone does not become a Christian because it is only the gospel that deals with this matter of death, something that everyone has to face. I noticed yesterday morning in watching the news reports of the president's trip to the Middle East, you may have seen it, that uh, the Saudi Foreign Minister and the uh, Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, uh, held a joint news uh, conference in Riyadh in in Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi Foreign Minister mentioned in spoken glowing terms of the uh, summit at the meeting that the, uh, the King of Saudi Arabia and the President had and he was describing uh, the president's trip to the Middle East in this way. He said the president had come to Saudi Arabia, uh, there the the geographical center of Islam, and then he was gonna go to Israel, uh, the geographical center of Judaism, Uh, and then he was going to go to Rome, Uh, what the Saudi foreign minister understood to be the geographical center of Christianity. And he said that the president was going to visit the center of all uh, of the world's three great monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And he was, in a sense, treating those great world religions as having somewhat of an equal status. Now, in his defense, he didn't understand that first of all, Rome is not the geographical center of Christianity. It doesn't have a geographical center like Islam and Judaism. But nonetheless, uh, we understood the point that he was trying to make. Some of you in college may have taken courses on what they often describe as comparative religions. And they like to compare the religions of the world. But I put to you this morning that the message of the gospel is unparalleled. And the reason for that is this, that it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has an intelligent, rational, evidenced, based, message addressing the matter of death, and that should be of interest to all of us because all of us are liable to face death. You know, we're not all going to go skydiving. We're not all going to go dove hunting. We're not all going to go to the moon, but we will all face death. We are all mortal. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that addresses death. Notice what Paul says, that in connection with the gospel, it is in verse 10, it is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is only the gospel that has abolished death. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not die. He has abolished death. Now, someone's going to say, well, is that really true? Don't Christians die? I've taken lots of funerals. There's a man up our way and he's got a, a very, very sort of friendly personality and he's got Uh, uh, his facial features look like he's constantly smiling. And he was asked to take a funeral one time, and he took the funeral. But afterwards, some of the family members complained because he was too happy all the time. Well, word got back to him that criticism, and he thought, well, maybe I'm not cut out to take funerals. So somebody came to him again and asked him if he would take a funeral on a subsequent occasion. And so he said, well, no, he said he he felt that maybe it wasn't his calling to take funerals. And he recommended to them that they call me. (laughs) And his words were this, he says, Brian Gunning, he's got more of a funeral personality. And he's my friend. (laughs) You remember the old saying, with friends like that, you know? (laughs) Well, I've taken lots of funerals, and many of them of Christians. Do Christians die? Technically, they don't. Remember how Paul speaks about it in, in 1 Corinthians 15? He talks about them as falling asleep. See, we look at death often in the sense of the the physical death of an individual, and we think that's death. But that's not really death. It's a symptom of death. Paul says to the Romans, in in explaining the Gospel in his letter to the Romans, he says this, by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin so that death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He's not speaking about what we know as physical death there. When Paul speaks about death, he speaks about death as the righteous judicial act of God against our sin. That when a person dies, it's not the end of that person. They don't cease to exist. We don't believe in annihilation. The physical death is but a symptom of the judgment on our sin. God never intended that people would die. It was sin that brought death. Paul says the gospel has abolished death because Christ has taken the judgment for our sin. How do we know any of that's true? How do we know the promise in the Bible that when a Christian physically dies or falls asleep, they go to be with the Lord? That's a wonderful promise, but how do we know that's true? When our Lord Jesus Christ died, writer to the Hebrews describes it this way. He says that through death, He destroyed him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. When our Lord Jesus Christ yielded his life at Calvary's cross, he walked into the realm of death, and he looked death straight in the face, and death completely collapsed, Never before had death been confronted with a man like Jesus Christ. A man who could step into death with no sin of his own. A a, a man who could step into death, destroy him that had the power of death, and turn around and walk back out of death one who lives in the power of an endless life, one who would say, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Our Lord Jesus Christ walked into death, he turned around, and he walked back out of The historical fact, the evidence, the eyewitness that Christ died and He rose from the dead is absolutely unique to the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Islam has no stories of resurrection. Judaism has no story of resurrection. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us there is one who has died and there is one who has been raised from the dead. And on that basis, he offers to us the hope of eternal life. It is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is an unparalleled message. There is no other message in the world like this. And finally, it is a message of unlimited or universal application. Paul says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, or of the nations. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who told that little band of Jewish disciples, he says, go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. This is a message that goes to the whole world, all the nations of the world. Abraham was told centuries ago that God would make of him a great nation But not only a great nation, the Jewish nation, would come from Abraham, but through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This message is not limited. This message is not confined. This is a universal message that goes to the whole world. It is is an offer that is unlimited. Uh, There is no qualifications, there are no limitations, and there is no hesitation in offering the message of the gospel to all who will come and believe. Paul was the champion of the gospel. He says, I'm appointed a preacher, a herald really is the word there, a herald of the message, an apostle, one sent with authority, and a teacher of the nations that the only hope in this world is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, let me urge you. Let me plead with you. Let me implore you. Let me invite you. Let me call you to this message to put your faith in Christ and find salvation here this morning, right at Claremont Bible Chapel. It will be a life changing decision for you. It will be the reason you're found in this company this morning, that you might find Christ. And for those of us that know Him, as we've thought about the gospel this morning, let it refresh us, let it challenge us, let, us, let it uh, sanctify us. That is, in a sense, Give us a great distaste for this world and a fresh appreciation of our salvation and our Savior and remind us that we possess, as those that have been called to spread the gospel, we possess the only hope for this world, the gospel, the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father... How thankful we are that the message of the gospel has not been lost to this world through the centuries. The same message that this dear man, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, brought to the world is still fresh and real and clear and alive for us today. And we pray that its issues might be clear to all of our hearts and minds, all that are gathered in this company this morning. We pray that it might be clear to us. If there's any that don't know Christ, we pray they'll have the courage to trust Him this morning, to seize the opportunity, the golden opportunity that has been handed to them. That our Father, for those of us that know Christ, deliver us from complacency, deliver us from worldliness, deliver us from a, a, a very uh, weak connection to the message that we may know what it is to have the power of Christ rest upon us, that we might be vibrant witnesses to this message, the only hope, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for the provision that has been made for us for lunch now, and pray that we'll all be able to stay and enjoy it. We're thankful for those that have prepared it, and we're thankful to the God who has made it available to us, and we give Thee thanks for it as we part in His name and to his honor and glory.